Alright, well previously I shared about how I worked at Marvel Comics during my college summers and one of the conversations that would repeatedly come up, as you can imagine, at a place like Marvel Comics during lunch breaks was which character is cooler? Especially which character would be cooler to write for because we were in the editorial section and we would get into these really heated debates about the merits of various superheroes and how much cooler it would be to write for which one, Wolverine or Daredevil or Spider-Man or Iron Man, which sounds really super geeky until you realize some of these people are making millions right now writing the movies that you watch during the summers, right? Uh, One comparison that pretty much everyone agreed on, however, was when it came to the issue of Batman or Superman. Which would be cooler to write for, Batman or Superman? Take a guess. What What would you guys say? Pretty much. Almost everyone said Batman. Why? Because he is more tortured. He has anger issues. He has issues with his parents. He actually has no superpowers. He's just kind of like really wealthy. (laughs) And even though you know this, even though he's one of the good guys, uh, he, he, he struggles with being bad. In other words, they were saying he was more relatable, more human. I mean, the main thing that Superman struggles with, and you can see the storyline brought up in every single movie that's, uh, that Superman stars in, is that he's basically lonely because he's so powerful. Nobody could relate to his issues, you know? Even kryptonite, if you think about it, it never really kills him. It just makes him a little bit nauseous. He just gets out, gets some air, gets some sun, and he's like feeling better again. It's like that's all he needs. Now, here is why I bring this up. Most of us, we get this. We get that life is complex. That even though we might call our bosses evil sometimes, we know that they're not really completely evil. That you can imagine there are times in which they're actually good people. You could see glimpses of that. You could imagine times in which you might say, you know, in a different circumstance, maybe I would have hung out with him. And that as good as we think we like, uh, we like to think that we are, there's stuff in here, right? We also know that there's stuff in here that we all struggle with. And, and if you want to get theological, this stuff about us being not quite completely all, never being right. This is what theologians call total depravity. And awareness of this is the moment that you realize your desperate need for a savior. We struggle with our motives. We struggle with our actions. We struggle with our emotions. We struggle with petty things that other people do to us that can commandeer our energy sometimes, right? We relate to Batman Because he is more like us. But, funny thing happens as we live life. We We start seeing things in black and white. We want to see things in black and white and good and bad. It is one thing to see actions and attitudes as sinful or righteous. You can do that. But we want to categorize people and entire situations into neat boxes as well. That fails to describe the reality that we encounter daily, 
But most of us are all about dumping people in situation in one corner or another. My kids are particularly at this stage, right, where they want to know if someone is a bad guy or a good guy. That, they ask me this all the time. Is that a bad guy or is that a good guy? Lucy came up to me and she asked me, are ninjas good guys or bad guys? And I said, well, they're assassins, you know. So I can't really be supportive of that as a profession. I would not approve of you going out with a ninja, I said. But the sort of ninjas that I think you're thinking of, and she's thinking of ninjagos. Well, those guys are trying their best to be defenders of good things. So, actually, I really have to question your question. That reply didn't go over very well with her. You might no longer be asking that question. Are they good guys or bad guys? But we often feel when something bad happens, when a situation is not quite right, we want to know, why is someone doing this to me? Why are they being like this? And rarely do we think that maybe there's something that's a little bit more complex that we might be part of. We want lines. We want to know which side of the line they're standing in and where we're standing. The biblical understanding of human nature is that we're all created to be uh, good in God's image, to do good, but we all sin, we all fall short of God's standard, and we stray from God's life-giving commands. Yes, there are those moments in life when clearly there are victims and perpetrators, when those things are clearly marked, And you don't want to dismiss those moments. But in most everyday human interaction that you and I live in, the the place that you and I live in, life is more complex. We can't divide it up like left and right. But we see it in terms of God's obedience and God's disobedience in all of our lives. We all add to the anxiety and stress of others with our thoughtless gestures and careless words, even as we sincerely pray that God would make us more useful in his kingdom, right? This is the doctrine of total depravity. Not that some are totally depraved and some are not, or that everything that we do is completely bad, but that sin touches even the best of us even the best of our intentions, even the best of our actions. So we must be humble. And it turns out that is the beginning of Christian maturity. In Nehemiah's story so far, the line between good and bad, good versus evil, it's been relatively easy and simple to draw, right? The good guys were the Jews, building the wall of Jerusalem, the the city of God. And the bad guys, the bad guys had names like Sambalot, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arab. The bad guys were literally the outsiders who threatened the rebuilding project for seemingly no other reason than just because they were really real jerks, right? They taunted Nehemiah by saying how the wall project was illegal, Uh, And they will never get it off the ground anyways. 
They sent annoying messages about how they were doing it all wrong. It's like, you know, for me, that's like one of the worst things when somebody says, oh, you're just doing it wrong. Like, oh, come on. Why? And, and they would say things like, even a fox walking on the wall would bring it down to collapse. And when that didn't work, they tried to bully Nehemiah and the people of God with a threat of, a threat of violence. And the peop- but the people of God persevered with those kind of, that kind of opposition from the outside. But then in chapter 5, what we read for today, we encounter a new kind of problem. One that threatens to topple the temple project from within. Men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Verse 1, it says. And suddenly the line drawing becomes a little bit tougher. Because now it's internal. It seems that in part because of the attention that was, be, that was given to the wall project, but also due to a bad harvest, some of the poorer members of the community were destitute. They had bills to pay. They had taxes to pay. So they borrowed money and they mortgaged their fields to the wealthy among them. Some of them even resorted to giving away their children to indentured servitude. It's a form of slavery where they would be required to work until the money was paid, repaid. So imagine the scene. By day, there would be this incredibly beautiful picture of people working side by side. And we saw this described in in, uh, chapter 3. All people from all different walks of life gathering together, all for the one cause, one purpose of building up the, the wall of Jerusalem to become the people of God. But then they go home at night, and the wealthy are actually getting wealthier. During the hardship, they're getting wealthier in the process, while the life for the poor is getting more dire by the day. These two images, these two dissonant images, uh, the people see this, and there's something wrong with this picture, with these two pictures. Here's the thing. Pressure from the outside have a tendency to solidify people, right? You have a common enemy. You know this. When there's an outside enemy, you actually group together and you strengthen But inside pressures have the effect of creating disunity, dividing the sense of oneness and replacing it with strife and discord. Now, how will these lines get drawn? How will you, or will you ignore the issues? Now these people have outcried against one another within the community, and they bring it up before Nehemiah. How will Nehemiah respond? Nehemiah hears this, and he thinks about it. This just goes against his sensibilities of justice and fairness. And his first reaction is anger, it says. And, And he says, what you're doing is wrong, folks. Maybe not by the law of the land. Maybe not by the law of the Persian Empire. But Nehemiah realizes if we're ever going to regain our identity as the people of God, we will have to hold ourselves to a higher standard. We must give due respect 
to God. That's the phrase that he uses, out of respect for God. And in that sense, we are falling short, he says. It makes no sense for us to work together, shoulder to shoulder on this wall, if that is where our sense of equality, where our sense of community ends. This has to stop. His anger is riling up. At this point, Nehemiah could have just played up his indignation, especially at the wealthy, the abusers, the wrongdoers. It would have been easy for him to do so and say, you are the bad guys. The ones who stand on that side, you guys are the bad guys. How can you possibly do this to your own people? How can you possibly do this knowing God's heart for justice? He could have cut it black and white. He could have cut it up in terms of good and bad. Nehemiah could have done that. It would have been, in fact, a populist move. He could have really ingratiated himself with the masses, but he doesn't. And I think the reason he's able to do this is because of this one simple thing that he says he does in verse 7. He pauses. He pauses. In verse 7 it says, he pondered this in his head. He says, first reaction is angry. He got angry. But then in verse 7 it says, he pondered these things in his head. And then listen to what he says. He says, what you're doing is not right, he says. But then, he doesn't just point fingers. Instead, he looks into his own life and he confesses, I and my brothers and my men are also lending money and grain. One percent, just one percent. He's not charging an exorbitant fee. He's not taking land. He's not taking somebody else's mortgage. He's not taking in slaves as payment. But he says, but even this needs to stop. And with that simple gesture, what Nehemiah says goes from something that could have divided the nascent community into victims versus the perpetrators, the good guys and the bad guys, to a call to hold ourselves to a higher standard, God's standard, for the sake of becoming one in God's community. Let us, again, he uses the phrase, let us stop charging interest. Let us stop doing this to one another. And he includes himself as one of the perpetrators. He could have said, and I think this is what most of us would have said, he could have said, come on, you can't compare what I'm doing as a favor to people the way I'm lending to what these guys are doing, you can't possibly compare that to this. It's apples and oranges. They're charging exorbitant rates, holding the children hostage, essentially. I'm lending at 1%. It's practically at a loss, folks. But he doesn't. He steps back. And instead he says, how might I be contributing to this? What is my complicity in this disunity? He says, help me. And I think he prays it like this. He says, help me to face up to the speck in my eye, even if my brothers have a log in theirs. Right? Nehemiah doesn't stop there. 
he steps back even further. What do I mean by this? Have you ever tried to mediate a fight and try to find out who did something wrong? What precipitated this argument or precipitated this, this fight? Um, it is most obvious when children do it, but we all do this. Countries do this. Democrats and Republicans just did this. But we try to draw lines in a way that makes it seem most favorable to us. One side will talk about how the other person perpetrated some wrongdoing against them. Lucy hit me. But then if you talk to the other side, they will say something like, well, that's because, and what they're not telling you is this, that they threw, that Max threw a toy at me first. Drawing of another side. And then you go to the other side back again and said, yeah, well, what they're, what they're not telling you is that I threw the toy at them because Lucy refused to play this game with me even though she said she would. See, we draw lines in such a way in our own heads so that our stories always make us look better, right? We do this, right? We do this even as grown up. We don't do this consciously. We don't say, I'm going to draw lines so that I look better. We just know how to do this. This is part of our sinful nature. We do this. Nobody has to teach us this. We just know how to draw lines to make ourselves look better. We are all storytelling cosmetologists. Nehemiah steps back and he considers and he ponders as best as he can the overall situation. Part of the problem, yes, indeed, part of the problem is that there are these selfish, uncaring people that's part of the community. But the other part is that there's this entire system that's in place. A system of taxation that is putting pressure on the people as a whole. And Nehemiah, who tells us in verse 14 that he would eventually become the governor of the land. The way he would earn his income is by taking a cut of the king's taxes. Right? That's what all governors did at that time. It was just standard practice. That was the system that was in place. But he realizes as he draws these lines, as he widens his lines, as he steps back, he realizes, man, that's part of the problem. With the people all contributing to the rebuilding project, their income is going to be lower. And they're not in a country with the most progressive of tax codes. And it dawns on Nehemiah that there is a connection here. That he cannot deny this connection between the tax that he would receive and the tax that's being collected on the backs of the people. Again, look, he could have said this. He says, that's just the system, folks. I'm not manipulating it. I'm not trying to gain extra favor from it. I just live in the system. I'm working hard. I have done my share of the work. I need to get paid. I got people to feed as well. I've earned my fair wages. This doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm innocent of this. He could have said this. But he doesn't. He, he doesn't say, look, most of the taxes go to the king anyway. And says, my portion is tiny. Instead, he says, I may not be able to do everything about this. I may not be able to change everything about this system. 
but I can do something. I am not going to take the land allotted for the governor. I am not going to take the food and the wine and the taxes and the money because the demands were heavy on, the, on, on these people, it says. I will not contribute to the burden anymore. Nehemiah steps back and he tells the story in such a way that makes him look worse than it started out. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? He says, I am part of a contributing factor. And I recognize that I am doing something indirectly, yes, but I am part of the contributing factor that's putting the burden on this community that's creating this unjust situation. And when he draws his line in such a way, he draws his line in such a way, he doesn't make himself look better, but maybe perhaps for the first time in history, he draws a line in storytelling about what happened that makes, himself look, that makes him look worse. When he does this, everyone falls in line. And he gains their respect and their trust. It is one of the most amazing examples of leadership you'll find. This issue could have ripped the community apart, folks. It could have divided the community into the accusers and the accused, the victims and the perpetrators, the haves and the have-nots. But instead, he heals the community with his one act. Nehemiah stands with the accusers and saying, this is wrong. Justice is due. But then he also stands with the accused. And he says, when no one was expecting him to do this, he says, I am complicit. I am contributing to the injustice. We will do this no more. So Nehemiah thus mollifies the anger of the victims while leading the repentance of the perpetrators. He does both of these things. He does both of these things. He stands, in one sense, on both sides in such a way that the sides realize this is not a side to be taken. By becoming a leader who makes it clear that he hears their eye cry and is willing to make personal sacrifices to make things right, Nehemiah rebuilds the people of God. This is anointed leadership. And that's what we witness in chapter 5. Now, here is what this means, I think, for you and me. And this lesson can be just as applicable in any relational situation, work, friends, marriage. But I'm going to apply this most directly to the community of God because this is a story about the community of God, the people of God, church life. Folks, in the context of doing life in the church, it is very easy. Folks, it is so easy for us to see a situation where you think someone has messed up. All right. someone, someone has messed up, and I'm suffering in one sense because of it. Someone has failed. Someone has not lived up to expectations or responsibilities. Someone has messed up. And that needs to be called out. That needs to be fixed. It could be personal, 
could be structural, it could be a ministry, it could be a program, it could be an attitude. It's so easy to have those kind of things be a time in which we point fingers. And this is what I'm learning from this. When you feel like that, pause. Ponder. Reflect. Think what, if any, might be my contribution to this. How might I be contributing to the mess? And after you do this and you think, I can't think of how I might possibly be part of this mess, then I will ask you to ask another question. Step back beyond that line that makes you look good and widen the perspective where you might not look so good. But then also ask this question. Say, ask, maybe I'm not contributing to the problem, but what are some ways that I could be contributing to the solution that I'm withholding? Accepting that we're part of the problem Accepting our complicity in the community, the problems of the community, does not mean that we're saying we are all equally to blame. Just like in Nehemiah's story, clearly there are times when some people carry more blame, more burden of blame than others. Clearly there are times in which, as pastors, I feel in a certain situation, it is right that I get, that the pastors get more of the blame. It's It's right. We have a certain responsibility. We have a certain standing. That's, so we're not saying everybody's equally to blame. To say that we all have a part in a certain problem does not mean that we're all equally to blame. Nor is it a way to downplay the seriousness of a problem in the community and just set it aside and cast it aside and just kind of be in denial of it. It's not just a way for us to say, oh, you know, we're all equally to blame, so therefore, what can we do? That's not what this is. But it does mean we remind ourselves that ultimately what we're going for is not a line drawn between good and bad, a line drawn that divides up the community in any way whatsoever. Who did something, who did something to whom? But ultimately, Our declaration is to honor Christ by desiring unity in a church that learns to improve its community, its sense of unity with every criticism. It means that as we identify problems, and that's a good thing, we step forward also in our willingness to be part of the solution. Here is the problem, but here is also what I can do to help. This is Nehemiah's approach. I was thinking this week about a time, I was just thinking about this passage. I was thinking this week about a time when I was much younger, much less wiser. Before I was a pastor, when I found myself um, in a personal conflict between two church members, both parties could have clearly done better, but there was a point at which one of them did something that seemed malicious. I mean, this is a time before I was a pastor, so it was long, a long, long time ago. So I, I, can, I can't even remember what exactly they did that was mean. But I remember thinking, uh, that's it. That, that crossed the line. Everything was okay, but this one is too much. 
And for whatever reason, I inserted myself into the situation, and I said, it has to be stopped. My confrontation with this, was, with this guy was truthful, and it was measured. And even now, I don't remember what I said, but I think I would still um, back up every one of my words. But here's the thing. How I handled it was still not up to Nehemiah's standards, God's standards, biblical standards. Because with that one situation, he would eventually see himself as the bad guy. Right? And if you're labeled the bad guy in a community, the only place for bad guys is to be out of the community. Right? You can repent But if you're labeled a bad guy, then you'd be the repentant bad guy that's part of the community. I was concerned much more about justice and fairness, and I failed to consider the reconciliation. I never gave this guy the chance to tell his part of the story, the circumstances that led to his action, But, you know, that would have complicated the story, right? When you start thinking like that, when you start broadening the storylines. I was going for black and white. I was going for clarity. I was going for right and wrong. Someone is wrong. Someone is right. And that is not a standard that God calls us to. Years later, this time as a pastor, in a different situation, I was in a situation where I had to confront someone who had crossed the line with uh, deceitful action that threatened to hurt the community. But I remember at that time, I paused. I paused in a way to receive wise counsel from others, and I went into this situation and I know, I know, I know, you won't believe me, but I was literally crying in this conversation. Nobody else could see the tears, but I could feel the tears just like, I'm just like holding it back in. I'm like taking deep breaths. It was like the time when I watched Titanic, you know, so that I couldn't, I wouldn't cry. I'm trained to do that. I could suck in the tears from coming out of my tear ducts. It's amazing ability. Because I felt what this person was feeling. I felt, I, I, I could feel um, their sadness. I could feel their sorrow. I could feel the situation and the anxiety that they were in, that they, they felt like they had to lie. And I took responsibility where I could I tried to understand his feelings. It was hard, but in the end, this brother was reconciled to the community, and that confrontation had the effect of making our relationship even stronger. It's hard to draw lines in a story that makes you feel like you're part of a problem because you realize, when you start doing that, you realize, man, you're, you're part of lots of problems. It's hard because that's not the way we've been trained. That's not 
That's not in one sense our nature to draw storylines. Our storylines are about making ourselves look better, not about making ourselves look worse. I've been talking a lot with, um, with people recently, trying to receive guidance and, and wisdom from others um, about the whole merger thing and, and thinking about future church and all that stuff. So I was talking with someone about uh, leadership and the qualities that we like to see in leaders, and, and he somehow got into a topic about talking about his pastor. He's a, my friend is an elder in his church. I know, it's like weird. I have friends that are like, at this point, elders in their church now. I'm like, they're old elders in the church. I know that's something to do with uh, self-deception about how I see myself, right? And he said, I told my pastor this. And it sounds, he said, it sounds like a backhanded compliment. It's like anybody that starts off a sentence by saying, it sounds like a backhanded compliment, you know, you kind of have to brace yourself, right? But I really meant it as a word of encouragement to my pastor. And he said, I told my pastor, he said, with all the failures that you have gone through in ministry, you should write a book about that. He said, all these young pastors that are coming along, they can go to dozens of conferences, read tons of books on how to succeed in ministry, but you can share with them your stories about how to fail in ministry. That is not something that you can get from too many people. And I asked my friend, this is almost word for word what he said. I said, so I asked him, what, what did your pastor say to that? He said, I don't know. He's not returning any of my phone calls anymore. <laughs> no, he said, actually, my pastor said, thank you. <laughs> this is what my friend is saying. Leadership, Christian maturity is not knowing how to be more right than others. It's not about drawing lines so that you look good. It's not, um, Christian maturity is learning to accept our failures, our flaws, and realizing that in our weakness, he becomes strong. So therefore, Apostle Paul says, I will boast all the more, more gladly in my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's how Paul talks about it. Leading others to live the gospel life is to help people understand how to live with our failures. Not be ashamed of them. Because when we see our failures and our weaknesses and our flaws and all the ways in which we fall short that is the place, that is the room in which Christ's grace may manifest. That's why Apostle Paul, it made no sense to me when I was younger, that passage in 2 Corinthians. But now, as a person who has failed many, many times on his own, where I feel like, yeah, maybe I could co-write that book. I'm beginning to get it. There's no Superman in our midst so perfect that the only thing that we can, only problem that we have is because we're so lonely that nobody could relate to our perfect, perfection. There's no one like that. 
We're all tortured souls. We're all part of the problem directly or indirectly. And part of what it means is to commit ourselves to a life in the community. To remember this every time we see problems, every time we see other people's failures, every time we see other people's weaknesses, that they remind us of our weaknesses as well and of our desperate need for Christ. Our weakness, our failures, taken in the context outside of a community of grace, is divisive. It breaks communities. But for a community of grace, that same weakness can be an opportunity for unity. Folks, do you see areas of our church in our community where we're failing? Some relationships, possibly. Do you see areas in our mission, our worship, and our fellowship? In our service? I hope you do. I hope you do see them. There's nothing wrong with you if you see them. There's nothing embarrassing or shameful about that. But I also hope that you love the church enough to not draw those lines within. Nehemiah, he does a lot of things right. But he didn't get everything right either. And you can see it if you want to look at it in his prayer at verse 19 that he concludes his passage with, which is actually wonderful that he prays. The point is that in one sense that he prays. But his pray, prayer makes, it, makes us realize, oh, even though he's doing this and he's doing it for the love of the people, he says, remember me, O Lord, all the things that I have sacrificed on behalf of these people. So he feels like, yeah, well, I'm sacrificing it. At least God, God sees this. There's a little bit of that in him. So he's not perfect, but that makes him, for me, more relatable, not less. He's not perfect, but he does point to the one who would come later, who was. Who would be faultless and was passionate about unity and was passionate about justice in the community. Passionate about these issues. But even though there could be no line ever drawn about this man that could be where, we, where we can tell a bad thing about him, a bad story could not be told about this man's life, even though his purity and his righteousness made others cringe in shame and guilt, he stood not with the accusers in the end, but with the accused. And bore our sin and our shame. If you're here and you don't know this Jesus, you can. You don't have to stand on the outside anymore because he stands with you.
This is a completely upside-down way of thinking about problems and issues. But that's what we do. That's where the community of grace stands, possibly as the light that this world desperately needs. May we, may we aspire to become weak, flaunt our weakness, boast even more gladly in our weakness, so that his power may rest on us even more strongly. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. And those words mean we get what we don't deserve in the best sense. And those words mean you know our pain and our sorrow. But you don't just hash it out. You dwell with us. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.